0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Die here, a good morning in the back, and one over here. Good. It's Midwestern culture. So passive. All right. Uh, we do have Redemptional Kids for kids ages 2 to 4, so if that serves you parents, um, you go right across the hall. You can check them in right over there. Also, we have totes in the hallway for kids as well, all along with sermon notes for kids. So if that serves you, uh, we have all of that available to you. Well, it is a joy to gather and sing with one another as we sing praises to Jesus. Um, I love Advent. It's probably my favorite time of the year. You know, pretty typical, I guess. But I just love everything about it, just in terms of what we're focusing on in our church life. This morning, uh, I'll be taking a slightly different approach to the sermon. I, slightly. Not altogether different. But the off-ramp, you think about you know, driving, you know, getting onto the interstate, the off-ramp is going to be a little bit longer before we actually get onto the interstate. And so I hope you're going to see the, the method to my kind of preaching madness this morning. Before praying and preaching, I want to frame the sermon with God's covenant of redemption in mind. Some of you might remember God's covenant of redemption as we were going through the book of Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 1. This is highlighted over and over when we were going through Ephesians 1. If you're not familiar with the concept of God's covenant of redemption, allow the late R.C. Sproul to provide some handlebars that you can hold on to. Here's what he said. The covenant of redemption is intimately concerned with God's eternal plan. That's really important. We're talking about God's eternal plan. And this maps on very clearly with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in particular today's text. It is called a covenant inasmuch as the plan involves two or more parties, right? Two parties making in an agreement. That's what's going on here. This is not a covenant between God and humans. It is a covenant among the persons of the Godhead, specifically between the Father and the Son. We're stepping back out of time and before creation. God did not become triune at creation or at the incarnation. His triunity is as eternal as his being. He is one in essence and three in persons from all eternity. And in this covenant of redemption, there's an agreement or a covenant made between the Father and the Son. I begin with a definition of God's covenant of redemption because it informs our knowledge of the incarnation or the birth of Christ. In plain terms, before Genesis 1-1, before time was created, like think about that, before time was created, God the Father and God the Son agreed or made a covenant out of love, a plan of redemption for sinners. And a critical part of God's plan is for the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh. Let's back up and ask the question, how is it sinful people are redeemed? Well, God had a plan before Genesis 1-1. How on earth could a person know what is going on between the Father and Son before the creation of the world? I'm asking the question a little bit rhetorically because we just look at his word. We look at the Bible for our answers. From the Bible, we can discern deep and special truths about God and about his plan of redemption. After all, the Bible is first and foremost about God and about what God has done for you. The Bible is not about you and what you can do for God. It's about God and what he has done for you. So I'm mentioning God's covenant of redemption because it has always been the intention of God to redeem or like to take back. God's on mission. He's taken back. Taken back a people for himself. And it's critical, I think, for us to see how and why. How and why this takes place. We must see how the birth of Jesus fits into this covenant that was made between the Father and the Son. And if you want to test my premise of the covenant of redemption, by the way, I, I encourage you and challenge you just to read Ephesians 1 slowly and carefully. Can't miss it when you read Ephesians 1. All right, let me pray. Let's get into the text. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. I need your help to speak clearly about some very important matters. About the birth of of our Savior, Jesus, and how this connects with the second Advent when Jesus will come back and everything in between. So I pray by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit will help make my words clear. And as Logan prayed, I want to pray right now that by the power of the Spirit, you help us apply your word for our good. We want this for our good. We know it's for our good, but it's also for the honor and glory of your magnificent name. Amen. Question. Why is it that millions and millions of people worldwide come together during the Christmas season to sing praises to Jesus? I mean, we think about historically people coming together during this Advent season, during this Christmas season, to sing praises to Jesus. Why? Why? Are pastors, like myself, tricking good people into coming to church to worship like a fictitious person? Or a real person who did fake things? Do people gather together because it's therapeutic? There's certainly a case to be made that some people or many people rely on religion for right or wrong. It kind of becomes their crutch. You kind of hear that language. Or they just want to feel good. Are people attending church out of guilt? I mean, as one who grew up Catholic, like if I didn't hit Mass every every Sunday, the guilt creeps in. I know that feeling. Are people attending church because it's good entertainment? Got the smoke and light show. People more concerned about being in awe of the worship leader as opposed to Jesus. Are millions of people gathering because there's pressure from the culture? Like, I lived in the South for three years, and it, it was interesting to watch how cultural pressure kind of forced people into going to church. Interesting dynamic. Not as much here in the Midwest, but that certainly exists in some pockets within America. Uh, do people attend church because it's good business? Like, I know folks, spe- specifically in bigger churches, like, I'm going to go to that church because I have a business, and I need some people to be part of my business, <laughs> right? want to make some cash. Why do we sing to the triune God who has eternally existed? Why? To the answer to the question, I want to work backwards in redemptive history. Redemptive history. By beginning with the second advent of Christ, I want to work backwards to show you why you should have shown up, hopefully you showed up this morning, to celebrate the first advent of Jesus Christ. This is is the off-ramp that I was talking about, right? Working backwards in redemptive history. It's going to take a little longer to get to John 1, but I hope that stepping back will help some of you to see the moments of redemption and appreciate, theologically speaking, how it connects with the birth of Jesus Christ. So, beginning with the second advent of Jesus. We've been talking about the first advent of Jesus Christ for several weeks, obviously. But I want you to consider this point. For thousands of years... Many Jews had placed their hope in a coming Messiah. So before Jesus was born, for thousands of years, there was hope placed in a coming Messiah. Our hope in the second advent of Jesus is very similar. We are waiting. When's he coming back? We are here to praise God with eager expectation that we, when Jesus comes back, he will save his people finally from their sin, but he will also come back, make no mistake about it, to judge the world. I went there on Christmas, right? Or in the Advent series. Judgment. It's not fashionable for one person to judge another in our culture. However, we must remember one of the one of the important aspects of the ancient creeds, in particular the Athanasian Creed or the Apostles' Creed, excuse me, says this: Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead, and that's not without biblical warrant. Then we're just pulling out of thin air. Here's what I mean: This affirmation comes from the Gospel of John. For the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And here are two passages from the book of Revelation on judgment. The first one's about Jesus coming on a white horse. Imagery in Revelation is amazing. Amazing. Here's what we read. Then I saw heaven open up. This is, this is John recording this, what he's seeing, right? Then I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse. I got girls that love horses. And when the white one comes, that's going to be Awesome. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Don't tell me how that doesn't map on to John 1. The Word of God. In the next chapter of Revelation, because just for fun, we got a great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books Books plural were open. Then another book was opened, which is called the Book of Life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. We cannot escape the fact that the second at the second advent there will be judgment. So allow me to get on my soapbox for a moment, then we'll move on. Within American Christianity, the notion that Jesus does not there's the notion that Jesus doesn't judge, right? Instead, there's a focus only on what love right that's the focus and the fact of the matter is that you cannot understand the love of Christ without understanding his judgment and vice versa it goes both ways therefore we need to strive to understand the entire picture of Christ from cradle to grave to resurrection to second coming the entire picture of Christ and frankly we got to stop making Jesus into our own image When you make Jesus in your own image, you engage in idol worship. At the second advent, Christ will bring together perfect love and justice. Until then, we must look to Christ to hold both together. Christ came in the first advent. Listen, this is why this is important. Christ came in the first advent because of pending judgment. It was out of love that God was made flesh and and that some would not receive judgment because of Christ. That first advent connects clearly with the second advent. Out of love, Christ came so that some might not receive judgment. So perhaps you are thinking to yourself and you're saying, dude, it's Christmas. (laughs) Come on. Why are you not talking about joy and peace and love and the Christmas tree and whatever else have you? Well, there is a place to talk about joy, peace, and the love of Christ during Christmas, but none of that makes sense without connecting the second advent of Christ with the first advent of Christ. In this time, our generation, before, chronologically speaking, before the great judgment, we hold the love and judgment of Christ together. And more will be going on at the second coming of Jesus. As Jesus judges judges the sins of people, he will also gather his people to join them into eternal life. Jesus will gather in a people of faith to live a new heaven in this new earth. There will be perfect peace at that time. There will be no more suffering and sin and tears, but God's people will experience the creator of the universe as it was meant to be at the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. There will be perfect purity and harmony. We will worship our King with joy. But that day has not yet come, has it? So again, Christians wait for that day with eager expectation. As we celebrate the first advent of Christ, we await that second advent with eager expectation. And if it were possible, non-Christians wait with fear and trembling. If they only knew what was coming. Backing up a little more. Today we worship our loving and gracious Heavenly Father. We worship God, the Holy Spirit, who is active and at work in the life of each Christian and the church. We worship Jesus for what he has done and what he will do. We honor the Son who is seated at the right hand of the Father, Luke twenty-two, sixty nine. We wait for the second advent, but our waiting is not in vain. So we have the second advent that we're looking forward to, but we have a present reality in which we are currently in. We are active as we wait for Jesus to return. While we wait, God has commissioned each Christian to tell this, unbelievable, this unbelieving and broken world about the love and judgment of God. And there's more to tell, which I'll get to in a moment, but we cannot lob off the present reality of God's redemptive plan. If we're going to go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was born, then we need to go tell it at school, at work, at the coffee shop home, and especially in the church. Our present reality is to be the hands and feet of God. He invites us into his redemptive plan, and we should joyfully respond to our high king. Now, continuing to work backwards in redemptive history, we're going back, backwards to the birth of Christ. It's also worth noting that Jesus ascended into heaven. This is a significant event in human history that is not discussed in much detail. We don't have much of it in Scripture, for one, but it's certainly not discussed much. Uh, Jesus was received into heaven alive. Like, that should be staggering right there alone. He currently sits at the Father's right hand with a resurrected body. Jesus rules and reigns from heaven with the holes in his hand and in his feet. The ascension of Jesus is a picture of what present or present and past Christians, can look forward to. I would just reference 1 Corinthians 15. The ascension of Christ also set loose the Holy Spirit to take up residence in God's people between these two advents. The second person of the Trinity was sent into the world to redeem it, right? And Jesus was sent back into heaven until a time when he would come back to fully redeem all things unto himself. Now, the resurrection of Jesus, before the ascension of Jesus, is the resurrection. The resurrected body of Jesus exists because he defeated death, sin, and the devil. A God that remains dead is no God at all. A God that remains dead is no God at all. However, through the resurrection of Jesus, it was proven that he is more powerful than death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives Christians confidence in the plan of God during Advent. Like, see the connection here. If Jesus died on the cross and stayed in the tomb, we are not celebrating and worshiping Jesus this morning. That's not happening. I mean, what would you be doing? I mean, sleeping in, right? If you're not a morning person, you're still sleeping right now. Uh, Kids watching tunes on the tube. On the TV, I'd be watching like your Sunday morning news programs or whatever. Maybe you're in the WWE, usually that's taking place on Sunday morning or whatever, right? You're doing something else, you're not here. But the resurrection of Jesus allows us to celebrate the crucifixion and birth of Jesus. If there is no resurrection, Then Jesus was just like think about this, there was no resurrection. He was just like the two thieves, one flanked to his left, one flanked to his right. There was no resurrection. Then we're not talking about the birth. As a matter of fact, the three of them would we'd be thinking about their birth in all the same terms. We're almost at the incarnation. Crucifixion. Jesus died on a cross to atone for the sin of God's people. What does atonement mean? Come kind of one of those big theological words. Well, the Bible's central message is atonement. That is, God has provided a way for humankind to come back into this harmony, uh, in harmony with God, right? The, the relationship was broken, and something had to be done to bring it back together. This theme of atonement is everywhere in Scripture, beginning in Genesis. So let me state clearly why Jesus was not born and why he did not die. So if the central message is atonement, then what is it not? Jesus did not die, nor was he born for you to feel good about yourself. Jesus did not die, nor was he born that you could live your best life now. Jesus did not die, nor was he born, for you to live a happy life. Jesus did not die, nor was he born, so that you could waltz through life with ease. None of that is true. No, Jesus was born, and he died to set you free through the transformation of your heart. You have a heart problem. Sean Powers has a heart problem because of sin. Which manifests itself into actions. Jesus suffered and died so that you could be forgiven of sin. But there's more to the death of Jesus than your forgiveness, which is crazy to think about. Like we all seek and desire forgiveness. If if that was it, we we'd still be celebrating. Thank you, Jesus. But there's more. Jesus died to set you free from the power of sin. You've been forgiven and set free from the power of sin. And there's even more. Jesus died to restore your relationship with God. A relationship that was broken because of sin. And there's even more. Jesus died so that you can enjoy the benefits of what's to come after the second advent of Christ. So, between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. Jesus needed to be crucified. There was no other way. There was no plan B. That's why I mentioned God's covenant of redemption at the very beginning. There was no other way. One more category before looking at the birth of Christ. What is another reason why Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice for the sin of man? Jesus did what Adam in the garden could not do. Jesus was born to live a perfect life, further proving his power over sin before he even took the path to Golgotha and the cross. The life of Jesus can be characterized in many ways, but here's two words I'm going to use. He was born to be perfectly obedient to the Father, and he was born with the singular goal to redeem in the obedience of Christ, we see a life of honor and pure worship. In the redemptive mission of Christ, we see a heart of love, of grace, of mercy to redeem what would have been torn apart because of sin. So, the second advent, our current present reality as, we, as you sit and as I stand right now, the ascension of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the perfect life of Christ could have only taken place if God had chose to make himself known through the birth of Jesus Christ. For a moment, go back to my opening question. Why is it that millions and millions of people worldwide gather every Sunday to sing praises to Jesus? Why? We gather to celebrate the word that has become flesh and has, is dwelling in currently dwelling with God's image bearers with the express purpose to save them from their sin. One of my all-time favorite theologians. If you're like, hey, Pastor Sean, what did you like, top five theologians? This guy's in my top five, for sure. His name is Athanasius of Alexandria. He died in the 4th century, so he's really old. Old, dead guy. Uh, But before he died, Athanasius wrote one of the most important theological books on the um, deity of Christ and on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's simply called On the Incarnation not original, but really helpful. We know what he's getting at. Here's what he said. For the word perceived that death was the only way that the corruption of people could be undone. People corrupted the world, and it's like, how, did, how can we undo this corruption? However, it was impossible for the word to suffer death being immortal and the son of the father. Therefore, he takes to himself a body capable of death, Like, if you love theology, I hope you're geeking out right now, because this is good theology right here. Where Where did I leave off? Therefore, let's go with therefore. Therefore, he takes himself a body capable of death, so that such a body, by partaking of the word, who is above all, might be worthy to die in the stead of all, and might, because of the word that had come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible in this way. The corruption of all might be checked by the grace of the resurrection. Sorry, I'm geeking out over that, over that quote. I mean, it's good. Theology right here. Why and how God came to redeem a sinful people. The Word became flesh to fulfill the redemptive plan of God. It is in Christ. We see God's glory on display as His plan of redemption. It's just made clear. Like in, in our Sunday morning activities if we do not highlight or support the premise that the word became flesh to redeem sinners, then we're simply doing it all wrong. We're doing it all wrong. The moment God's redemptive plan is not sung, it's not preached, it's not on our, on our mind or on our heart, the moment that's not taken place or that's at least not modeled is the moment we close the doors to the church. Why else would we gather? Why else? I'm not interested in another reason to gather other than to focus on Christ. From his first advent to the second advent. Throughout church history, there's always been a conversation about how God's redemptive plan could happen through Christ. Namely, there's been a conversation just kind of about his humanity and being human and his divinity, divine, right? Let's talk more about the, we call it the two natures of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. We were talking about this earlier today, before many of you gathered. Like, we talk about the Trinity or the deity of Christ. One thing you don't do is use metaphors. So just a little pastoral tip. Uh, once you use a metaphor, when you talk about the Trinity or the deity of Christ, we uh, call you a heretic. <laughs> so don't do it. We use words. In the last three weeks, we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, right? Chapters 1 and 2, very specifically. In Matthew, we see a lot of the human nature of Jesus, how that's emphasized, right? For example, I repeated that God needed to assume all of humanity except sin to save humanity from its sin. Through the genealogy of Jesus, the wise men, the star, the stable, of the threat of Herod, right? We see kind of the earthiness or the humanity of Jesus, the gospel of John helps us to fill out some of the some of what's going on in his divine nature. If God needed to take on all of humanity to save humanity from sin, then it's equally true that only the divine nature of the Son could accomplish the redemptive plan of God. I mean, who else could have done this great plan of redemption? You? Pastor? Your favorite missionary? Or theologian? No. No. The rescue of man could only happen through the God-man, Jesus Christ. The opening words of the Gospel of John establish the divine nature of Jesus, and I'm grateful that Ryan walked us through um, the verses leading up to today's focus. In John 1, verses 1 to 4, we read, In the beginning was the Word. This is, this is just such, so beautiful just to read it. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made. All things were made. What things? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So the gospel writer John who, who wrote this, he's, he's no dummy. He knows his Bible, quite frankly. His first words are meant to be tracked on to Genesis 1-1. It's crazy. Uh, Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 begin with these two Greek words. N-R-K, in the beginning. Three English words, in the beginning. John's reading his Greek Old Testament. So he's he's, he's basically looking at Genesis 1-1. He's like, ah, I know how to start this gospel. In the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect harmony and love before time was created. The triune God breathed the universe into existence and made man and woman into his own image. In John 1-1, the second person of the Trinity is identified as the Word. The Word was not a God, the Word is God. He is the one who created the world. Further, the Word is the present light that overcomes the darkness in the soul of man, verse 4 and 5. Now, do not let the language of Word trip you up here, right? There's something going on here, theologically speaking. It might seem mystical and vague, unveiled, and excuse me, but God isn't trying to be vague or confusing. The opposite is being made explicit. God wants to help you to see the divine, how the divine nature takes up residence in the one person of Christ. Pastor Richard Phillips says this, God the Son, the Word, did not come to existence in his incarnation, but he became a human being in addition to a divine being. So there's a reason why we don't read in the beginning was Jesus Christ. We read in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was made flesh. And the fully God and fully man, Son of God, is the divine light that shines forth to expose and destroy the darkness. As we look at verses 14 to 18, we read more about how the Word overcomes the darkness. We read this in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Two Greek words from verse 14 help us to see what is happening at the birth of Jesus Christ. First, the word, the Greek word for flesh is sarx. Um, basically, it's meant to convey all the realities of what it means to become a human. John had at his disposal other particular words to use. He could have used the word uh, anthropos, which is man. He could have used the word soma, which is translated for body, right? He had other words, but he used sark for a particular reason. And you want to know why? There's a, there's a sense of crudality in the word flesh. Like you read your New Testament, it's also often associated with sin, Right? There's a crudality to it. I think John was trying to say something here. Like, the Son of God was nursed, he slept, and he cried in a manger. Like, we need to dismiss the images that have been given to us over the years. For example, we see a picture of baby Jesus arriving on the scene and like, he's got a halo. All right, you've seen those pictures, right? And I could appreciate the art, but it's not true. Maybe I'm not trying to negate the majesty of Christ nor his divinity, but let's paint a, a biblical picture of Jesus. God condescended and took on flesh. The second word to consider in that verse is dwelt. Uh, the Greek for dwelt means Jesus, the Son of God, uh, took up residence, or even more literally, he pitched a tent. <laughs> I just love the, the imagery in my head. I mean, think about how personal it is for God to like, grab the tent stakes and just throw them down on the ground and put the tent up. Or to take up residence. It's like he's, he's got the extra key to the house and he's moving into the extra bedroom. He's taking up residence. He's here. C.S. Lewis has said, the central miracle asserted by Christianity is the incarnation. They say that God became man. He goes down to come up again and bring a whole ruined world up through him. The Son of God taken on flesh and dwelling with creation would have been unexpected by some and expected by others. I want to explain that. A miracle of the virgin birth would not have been off-putting to many people in the first century Greco-Roman world. I think I mentioned this in in the first sermon on the Advent series. Uh, Miracles are not looked down upon as they are kind of in our post- um, Enlightenment, uh, Western culture. That's not the problem here. What would have been harder to grasp was God taking on flesh and actually dwelling with creation. That's, that was anathema. On a spiritual level, there was very little intellectual space in the first century for God, for a God or gods to take on flesh, to become human. You just don't do it. As a matter of fact, the claims of Christianity were so radical to the religious psyche of the first century Greco-Roman culture. The spirit was good, the flesh was evil, and the two never came together. But now with Christianity, the divine, God, taking on flesh kind of upset the apple cart. With the birth of Christ, what was distinct became one, right? And that is one of the points about the word coming in the flesh. The word came at a specific time amongst a particular culture. God wants people to believe the unbelievable by faith. Believe it. God wants them and us to see the length of what he will do to save his people to himself. God loves you so much that he was willing to take up residence in your life. And when God takes up residence in your life, he does not move out. He does not move out. The love of God is so compelling that it keeps you from moving out. For some, this is an unexpected move by God. God. But he did it out of love. Yet, as we have seen in previous weeks, the word becoming flesh is also expected. Not for the people in the Greco Roman world, but those rightly reading their Old Testament. There's always been a strong sense that verse 14 has always been a part of God's plan. Instead of returning to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Hosea, which we looked at in previous three weeks, right, those prophets, verse 15 mentions a contemporary prophet to Jesus, John the Baptist. It says this in verse 15. John bore witness about him and he cried out, this was whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Another prophet from a different generation is trying to wake up a sleepy people about the coming Messiah. Verse 15, if you read in the ESV, it's got like, it's parenthetical, right? And it's support, it's a supporting thought to the main point. It could continues to affirm that God is doing something great. God will do something greater through Jesus than he has been doing through John the Baptist. When John the Baptist says, Jesus ranks before me, he is talking about the importance of the person and message of Christ. John the Baptist preached this message of repentance, right? When the word became flesh, the baton was passed to Jesus because in Jesus, repentance could be found. And just in case we are unclear about the message that would pour forth from baby Jesus 30 years later, here's Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe that Jesus was born, and he is born to reign. Jesus was born to preach, repent, and believe. In verse 17, uh, we have another comparison with Moses that helps us realize the significance of the word becoming flesh. God used Moses to give the law. That's what we read. But through Jesus, the grace of God and the truth of the law are now written on the heart. We can reference Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. When we consider the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the mission of God is unmistakable. Until the second advent of Jesus Christ, the first advent brings together God's chosen people. And what else is God accomplishing by the word taken on flesh? Verses 14 to 18 tell us of several fascinating consequences of God making himself known in Christ. One, the glory of God is revealed at the birth of Christ, and two, God's glory What emanates from God's glory are grace and truth. Take another look at verse 14. I'm going to focus on the latter part of that verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have what? Seen his glory now. Glory as of the only son. God has revealed his glory at various moments in history, right? A notable moment is when Moses asked God to see his glory. Exodus 33. How did God respond? You cannot see my face, he says to Moses. For man shall not see me and live. I mean, that's what God told great Moses. But, oh my, has something changed? Something has changed with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God has revealed his glory through the Son for all who can see. The glory of God is not aesthetic. It has more to do with God's character. That's what we see in Jesus. An earthly king can have the most beautiful crown on his head, but not have one ounce of glory if his character is trash. Conversely, King Jesus can have the fullness of God's glory, and he was crowned with thorns. In verses 14 to 18, the glory of God has been revealed with two characteristics, grace and truth. It is through Christ that we can know grace and truth. Twice in these five verses, grace and truth are used together. It is God's grace that Jesus was born into this world. The manger scene, with all of its, uh, its crudility, uh, was dripping with the grace of God. Right? You got the baby in the manger, and the stable, and the animals, and the smells. But it was just dripping with the grace of God. God the Father, out of love, freely gave his Son into the world, John 3.16. And as we move back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate picture of God's grace. It is God's grace that saves and sets you free from the devil and sin. God's grace is God's glory on display. The second characteristic that flows from the glory of Jesus is truth. Here is the truth. Jesus is the truth. How we understand reality flows from him, through him, and from him. How we understand the truth of our lives is found in him, through him, and from him. Like we live in a world that relativizes truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. Dude down the road has his truth. And here's the bottom line. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless it is through the truth. The truth is the word became flesh and God made himself known in Christ. The truth is Jesus lived a perfect life. The truth is Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin and my sin. The truth is Jesus died on a cross for your sin so that you could be forgiven. The truth is Jesus rose from the dead to demonstrate he had power over sin and death. The truth is Jesus ascended to heaven. The truth is Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father right now as i preach and as you sit and listen and the truth is jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his eternal kingdom in which all god's people will be with jesus you want to talk about truth what i just said was truth so this christmas we celebrate our gracious and truthful god who revealed his glory through the birth of Jesus Christ. And the birth of Christ is an amazing part of how God has revealed himself to a weary and broken world in need of redemption. Let's pray.